Good evening and welcome to Town Square. I'm Colin Moore, the director of the UH Public Policy Center and the guest host for tonight's program. As we like to tell you every week, our conversations always include you. And if you'd like to join us, here are our numbers. 941-3689. If you call us from Oahu, that's the number to use. 941-3689. If you're calling from the neighbor islands or anywhere else, it's 877-941-3689. And if you're listening to the live stream, that's the number to use, too. The press play a critical role in any democracy, but questions remain about the proper role of the media. Is it biased? And if so, does that interfere with the media's role as democracy's watchdog? Does local and national media coverage generally enlighten or confuse voters? Do reporters focus on things that might help us make informed choices, or do they just look for scandal and controversy? These questions seem to take on particular significance during election season, and this year is certainly no exception. Tonight on Town Square, we'll take a look at how the media covers campaigns and elections and see if these, some of these common criticisms have merit. In particular, we'll look at how the media covers or doesn't cover major political events and how reporters choose to present that information. Our panel of journalists will have a lot to say on these topics, and maybe you do too. If so, you can join our conversation at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Here's our panel. Ian Lind is an award-winning investigative reporter, columnist, and blogger. Denby Fawcett is a veteran Hawaii journalist who served as the government reporter for KITV News for 23 years. And Nick Ruby is a reporter for Honolulu Civil Beat. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start tonight uh, with the reporting process. Uh, we're all consumers of news, but few of us have any experience in a newsroom. And I think the whole process for a lot of folks is still a bit mysterious. Uh, so, so Denby, I'd like to start with you. How do you come up with a story during election season? What, what do you choose to cover? How do you make those decisions? Well, I uh, initially pick what interests me, and I'm a columnist, so I can pick and choose what I want, which is a great luxury. I I pick that because I know I'll write about it more passionately. I also pick – I've always felt that covering politics is a bit bit like covering drama, like covering a play. Sure. So I like to report on what's going on behind what you see in front of you because a politician saying something is just – in, often very superficial and self-serving and geared toward that politician's goal. So I like to go behind that and show. And so examples of what Nick has done during the last mayoral e- election of what was driving it, the role of PRP, things like that, that the public might not necessarily know. And then I have a third kind of quirky thing I always try to do during the elections in this very Democrat state state is always look for ways to re- to cover Republicans, because I believe in a two-party system, and it's just dead here. So I'm hopefully optimistic, always want it to come back. Do, do you find that to be a challenge to, to sell to the editors or to uh, think that readers might be interested in, in covering Republican candidates who sometimes maybe you know aren't necessarily competitive candidates? Well, I'm good at selling stories, so, <laughs> but I think that there's always a hope for the same thing. For We don't have balance here and to hope for kind of a nirvana where we did. So I think they're often eager to, to 
be fair to be considerate. Well, and sometimes the story is that there isn't a strong challenger maybe from the other party. And I think that's uh, important for us as journalists to look at and, and, and actually ask that question about um, why maybe the political bench isn't that deep or why Republicans uh, aren't running or why Republicans are, in fact, switching parties and becoming yeah. Democrats, as we've seen here over and over. What about you, Ian? How do you, how do you select a story? I think that maybe the more important thing right now is who's reporting on political news. And unfortunately, we're all caught in this, um, the big flushing of the media uh, industry, which has seen newspapers um, failing, uh, reporters, numbers of reporters crashing by the tens of thousands, um, and simply far fewer reporters across the board um, covering politics. Not I'm not as concerned about election coverage. It seems to me that election coverage is part and parcel of political coverage, you know, door to door between elections. And if you and if you aren't reporting on politics as it happens and what's behind the scene and telling people the stories of who who and uh, how and why decisions are being made before the election. By the time you get to election, all you have is what can we get that makes a headline today, and you don't really meet people's needs to understand the process. So that, I'm concerned about about that process. It's so different than it was 10, 20, 30, 60 years ago. So I tell people I uh, was looking for some old story on something else, and I went back through newspapers in the 1930s, and in the second week of January, there'd be this big front page story saying, Maui delegation arrives in Honolulu for the opening of the legislative session. And then they'd go on. They'd be talking to each member of the delegation and what their family background was and what their issues were and what their interests were. And it was so different from now where I don't think any nine out of ten people in Honolulu couldn't name a member of the Maui delegation. <laughs> So, so would you say that as a result of, of uh, smaller media budgets, it's more focused on horse race stories and there's no, there's no time or resources to give people the right background? Yeah, just like reporting on e in every other part of uh, society, there's less budget, there's fewer people, and, and there's no time. So you find the things that can be done, quick hits, day-to-day, -day, um, lack of perspective, and certainly no or virtually no research on what's happened before and what those what the people you're talking to have done before in their lives. Well, you see, though, one thing I was talking to Daryl Huff today, who's the producer in charge of special projects at Hawaii News Now, and he, in effect, is running their political reporting. You just don't see him on TV. He figures out what they're going to cover. And he was, I was talking about, well, in the olden days, I used to work with him. And there were three of us, like two of us always covering the legislature, and a, a third, uh, Kyoki Kerr, who covered the city, but he'd come and help us. But he said one thing you have to acknowledge today, too, going beyond the smaller staffs and the no time having to fill more shows, is that you can do a lot of it online. 
you can do so much with bills. We used to collect the paper bills and then go through them and read them. And we we often did stories, I thought, that weren't that interesting. Like we'd follow a bill to death. And then the other thing, people say, well, they're not down at the Capitol covering things. But people you reach today often easier electronically uh, by texting them and calling them. Every Any good reporter's got everybody's cell phone number. And they can um, – so in some ways it it is – bad and it's not as much as we would like, but they're still trying to get beyond some of these constraints. Well, I think, yeah, the, uh, technology today allows a reporter to get a lot more information uh, a lot more quickly and also to put that information out there. Um, what I think uh, technology has also brought us, and this somewhat contradicts uh, what, what Ian has to say, although I do believe uh, I, I do agree with him that there aren't enough journalists or there aren't as many journalists uh, maybe as there used to be in the, uh, for instance, investigative news budgets have been shrinking. I think when we're talking about political news outside of Hawaii, uh, more on a national basis, you tend to have a lot more options. I mean, just log on to Twitter and scroll through uh, through your feed. You can, you can follow the New York Times, the Washington Post, which are traditional media outlets, but you also have outfits like Vox and 538 uh, who, who are out there also uh, jumping in on it. You also have your uh, partisan, um, quote-unquote, news outlets um, that are, are, are pumping out somewhat of a... Uh, uh, a spun version of their news, uh, whether it be for the right or for the left. If uh, if you'd like to join our conversation of thoughts on the media, uh, please remember the number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands. Um, we're going now to uh, Nikhil Ananda calling us from Maui. Uh, aloha and welcome to Town Square. There you go. Uh, I was listening to it on the radio. Thank you very much for having me on. Some of you I've uh, spoken to in the past or know me. I'm actually a uh, candidate for the uh, 13th House District here in Maui County. Uh, my comment is um, that most of the talking heads on TV, it's really frustrating to listen to them, and even on uh, NPR and HPR, uh, because uh, you know one of the major party candidates just lies and yet that gets covered as you know he, he makes a fact up and it's and and people just take it as godsend and jill stein of the green party and gary johnson are rarely if ever covered and i listen to the news and i've called npr and you know nation's capital left messages where they'll say the two parties the two parties the two parties but we're we're a country and hawaii of course we're on the ballot the green party and we're a country where people deserve to have all of the candidates, all four of them, have a chance of winning if they got enough electoral college votes and all that. So the coverage is always about, and obviously one of the two major party candidates, he just continually lies and makes things up, and people cover it like godsend. And then these talking heads, both on TV and radio, will make comments like they're fact. And it's so frustrating that you sit there and you try to listen, and like you guys are talking now and talking about some very significant things and factual, but the choices people have are so limited. So, so, so let's 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 see what uh, our reporters have to say about that. I mean, first, how do you cover a candidate like Donald Trump? I mean, all politicians are known to tell half truths. 
Um, how do you report on someone who frequently lies, I mean, to be quite blunt? And then how do you report on third parties? I mean, how do you decide when it's time to give them um, coverage and uh, when they're more protest candidates? Right. Well, um, I, I think it's uh, it, it's kind of interesting. How do you approach a candidate who lies? Well, uh, if you know that they're lying and you confront them during the interview uh, uh, about that lie, then you can deal with it there. But if if it's someone like a Donald Trump who has been caught time and time again lying, of course, you report on it. And you do see the media doing that. It's just how at what point does it resonate with people? You know, how many times can you call Donald Trump a liar? Um, it, it, it becomes really difficult when you're talking about third party candidates or candidates um, who, uh, when, when you look at polling and all of that, don't seem to be able to uh, pull it off, pull off, pull off an election. It does become difficult as a reporter because um, while you want to legitimately cover them, when you are constrained by resources and time, you you tend to focus on the major party candidates. What do you think, Ian? Has has the media generally handled uh, Trump and his uh, you know occasional lies uh, well, or uh, have they legitimated some of his claims by treating them seriously? I think the national media seems to have recognized that uh, they did not do enough fact checking and confrontation on things that were obvious uh, fabrications previously and have been trying to correct over the last month, six weeks. And and talking about it, I mean, being upfront about that correction and the perspective. Um, I'm wondering how that plays out in local elections. Um, You know, so much of reporting now, one, one big reporting style in these rushed newsrooms is, you know, well, this side says this, yeah. and oh, and this side says <laughs> right. this, and that's it. And that, so you're left as the listener or the reader or the viewer, uh, okay, um, does the reporter have any context that helps us sort out whether this side or this side is telling the truth or telling the whole truth? I think that's so where you get a combination. You can't just get your news from one source. You can't watch TV and say that's God's truth. And I think the newspapers and the Internet news sources have done a good job. When Trump is lying, I mean, his lies are so multi-layered that some really marvelous stories have come out about in the New York Times about his business. I mean, what a terrible businessman he is and his casinos and the people he's hurt and how mean he is to his employees. And I, I think it's been fascinating. And But you have to get your news from many, many sources. You can't just watch TV or listen to the radio. Except that, you know, Twitter and other social media have let people make the other choice of inundating themselves yeah. in the things they know they agree with and f- filtering out the vast amount of information that's from other conflicting sources or conflict with their views. And so that the availability of additional information doesn't necessarily lead to more informed uh, voters. I, I agree with you, and I'm talking to an ideal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I think another thing that social media has done, at least for political candidates, um, is uh, it has allowed them to talk directly to their voters, um, and it doesn't have to go through that sort of filter uh, of of the press. Uh, so 
that means it's not necessarily fact-checked or put into the proper context. Um, another another point I wanted to address uh, that, that Ian raised um, is uh, when a reporter's out there and it's a, and you're talk, uh, addressing an issue, let's say climate change, right? Um, if you're writing about climate change, in our newsroom we discuss whether or not you have to put in, quote, both sides of the story. Um, I, and if you know that one side is just wrong, why include it? Out of fairness, I mean that's that's doing a disservice to your readers and the public at large. But but why does that seem so often to happen? I mean, as a consumer of news and not a journalist myself, why why is is this a part of the culture of journalism that it is very difficult to to follow up on the claim you're making that there's no need to report on things that are that are false? Well, so I think it, it, it's um, a resu- uh, sort of a product of many. Uh, many things. Um, one being that it's easy to just put in he said, she said into an article where you're not actually fully vetting what it is they're actually saying. Um, I also think that there's this sometimes false notion that um, fairness is the same as balance and that all sides deserve to uh, have an equal say um, and, and I think that's been proliferated. And, you know, we get phone calls all the time from people who say, well, why did so-and-so have this many quotes in that story and I only had two? Or why didn't you put in the other side about, um, you know, the fact that uh, climate change is a myth and that um, dinosaurs were on this earth 2,000 years ago or something like that? And, and, and it's, uh, you know, a, a, as a reporter, you have to be able to filter that out. If you'd like to join our conversation, please call us tonight at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you're on the neighbor islands. Uh, Before we we started the show tonight, one of you mentioned to me that uh, the local elections here are are pretty boring this year. Um, How... How do you, as a reporter, inject some excitement into uh, to an election season, at least locally, uh, which, uh, you know, th- there's not a whole lot of interesting races, uh, the one-party state stands, uh, maybe the mayor's race? Um, what, uh, how do you think about this? I mean, maybe, maybe you can give us some thoughts, Dan B. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think this is one of the most boring local elections that I've, I've ever <laughs> covered. You know, I was talking to uh, Daryl F. today, and he was saying— I, it seems even that the politicians are bored with it. You know, you have like <laughs> one race that I guess people would say is interesting, the mayoral race, but that seems to be almost, you know, so hard for the the candidate, the challenging candidate, when he's, uh, it's a nonpartisan race, but he's going to be swashed every three minutes with being a Republican in a Democrat state, and it's an effective uh, way to campaign against him. So even that I can see just, not being very exciting. So I'm trying to think of ways myself and my own stories. And I've I've gone outside of the candidates on something I'm working on now to talk to other people of what they would like to see out of the candidates. Because when I talk to them, it's just so predictable. Sure, sure. Um, Ian or Nick, any any thoughts on this? I mean, (laughs) you blog every day, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally, successfully. (laughs) Um, I guess one of the things is politics can't always be exciting. And uh, 
have the latest titillating things because actually aren't we supposed to be reporting on policies and you know the the underlying philosophies that are behind the candidates and their performance in the past and those aren't always exciting but the, you know how to some i mean somehow we've gotten used to it has to be headline making stuff to make a political story that people are going to want to read and i'm not sure whether that's probably right. People aren't going to want well, to read these I, I things. I don't but. know. I just heard a TED talk about you know <laughs> bringing back the excitement to voting and talking about European countries where people get so excited they go and dress up before elections. And my my daughter was a diplomat working in Kosovo where the people going to vote were going to be in danger of their lives from their enemies, and they didn't even have good clothes, and they'd put on their costumes. And so it, it, it does seem like there's a way we could do it through writing about policy, maybe the personalities more of the people and their their character, their ethical character. I mean, that's that's interesting in this election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when when we're talking about the elections being boring, I think what we're talking about is the fact that there don't appear to be that many close races right. yeah. on the horizon. Um, and uh I think what you do, what I do uh, as a reporter in those situations is I I, I look at, I I try to use the election as a filter to, uh, let's say, really analyze a particular incumbent. Okay, if they don't, if they don't have a legitimate challenger, I still need to ask as a reporter, have they been doing a good job? And uh, and in what ways can I analyze them now within the context of this election? And, and, and part of that, I mean, yes, as reporters, we should be doing that every day. But when you're talking about so many different candidates, some of whom don't get coverage because, you know, we're talking about um, a, a state that has um, dozens and dozens of lawmakers and a, a lot fewer <laughs> reporters, um, this is your chance. Uh, and, and, and I think... Uh, also, as Demby is saying, I mean, you can also look at how our elections work. I think you go; uh, it, it goes back to asking questions about why aren't uh, more races competitive? Uh, why is incumbency such a thing in Hawaii? Um, and, and 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 also looking at the personalities of individual uh, lawmakers or um, their challengers who might actually be legitimate contenders and give them an opportunity to sort of put their ideas out there and 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 see if it takes hold maybe it's not this this election cycle maybe it's 2 years from now we're uh, we're going now to Michelle from Kaneohe aloha michelle welcome to town square thanks for taking my call aloha i was just listening to you guys talking back and forth about voter apathy um you know what? I think I, I think what's going on, I vote, okay? And I will vote. I will vote every time it's important to me, especially as a woman. Uh, my mother was born the year women were given the right to vote in this country, so it is important to me. However, we kind of out here in the trenches, out here, the you know, the 40-some percent who do vote, it kind of feels like, they, yeah, we vote for new people, and it ends up being the same old, same old. You know, our property taxes rise, uh, the GET rises. We keep here, you know, every time we turn around, uh, our government officials are talking, 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 and it hardly seems that 
anything concrete gets done. And so, Michelle, so, do you think this is a problem with media coverage, that the media isn't effectively holding uh, politicians accountable? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we, for instance, the rail, uh, I have been following that from the start. And first it was, okay, let's let's go all the way to UH, yay. And then it was like, no, maybe we need to stop at all of Moana. And then it's, no, let's, you know, do this, do that, do the other thing. Um We've been kicking this can down the road for like a gazillion years. Sure, And then sure. the latest thing with with that of um, Charles DeJou is dead in the water. I, you know, I don't even know why he's even bothering. Well, well, let's um, uh, let, let's see what our what our panel has to say about some of this. I mean, I think um, you know maybe there's a perception sometimes that uh, local journalists aren't aggressive enough against our uh, our incumbents. Um, that maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe. Um, you know, it, it takes an outsider to uh, maybe to, to bring a more aggressive mainland perspective. Um, or uh, I'd be curious to hear what you say. I mean, so Nick, you're you're <laughs> relatively new to Hawaii. Um, do you do you this think do you think that journalists get too comfortable that it's a small place and everyone knows each other and they don't really want to ask the hard questions? Yes, uh, that is the, is the short <laughs> answer. Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Civil Beat was started in the first place. Uh, even when there were two newspapers in town um, uh, before they merged, was because uh, we wanted to bring a different sort of perspective uh, to news here. I mean, I can tell you um, the first few assignments I went out on uh, were somewhat eye-opening. I've worked in a few other states before coming to Hawaii, and um, I was getting asked why I was asking certain questions, which I found to be quite normal as a reporter. Um, and, and, you know, everybody wanted to talk only on background and, you know, whisper about something when I was asking a basic question like, you know, when does this case go to trial? Or, you know, what, what, uh, let, tell me about the, the budget process here and, you know, what are some of the hot-button issues. And, and I think those are very, very simplistic stories. Um, uh, talking about accountability for a second, I mean, as someone who's done some uh, investigations into politicians over the years, um, it's, you know, as a reporter, you can only do so, so much. You can report what you find, and it could be um, very critical of whomever the politician or the government official might be, uh, and you can point out what the options are going forward, uh, whether a here's um, how they can be replaced or here's how this problem can be solved, but it's really up to the people in the positions of power to act upon that. Um, and voters as well, uh, voters coming out and being so outraged that they demand change, that they demand answers. Um, but I can tell you so many times where I've written what I thought was an explosive story where I thought, you know, heads are going to roll, uh, things are going to change. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I show up to the next city council meeting or whatever, and there's three people in the audience, you yeah. know, well, maybe one of whom read what I actually yeah. wrote. What and do you the, think, Denby and well, Ian? Our, our local reporters, you two have spent well, your career thing here. I wanted to address first was what Michelle said about 
why she didn't even know why Charles DeJoux was running. And in my case, I say thank you to him for running because we have too many politicians here that just walk in the door. For me, I want my politician to fight for my vote. I want to have an opponent. I want someone in there. I want um, forums and debates. And Charles DeJoux is an attorney. I want him to go lurch into Kurt Caldwell and ask some of those same questions you're interested in. And um, even if someone doesn't win, we shouldn't speak poorly of them because that's what we want in our country. We want a fight. We don't want people just being uh, kings that take the throne every year. And then um, one thing Nick said to follow up on your question about more aggressive reporting, Civil Beat, I don't know if you read any of Nick's pieces on rail. I mean, they took it apart, the budget. But like you say, were how many readers really grasp that? And I mean, I don't think you read that because you wouldn't, wouldn't have had a problem with someone asking questions about rail and the cost and why it's going where it's going. Ian, what do you think? I mean, is, is part of the problem that we have incumbents easily win re-election uh, stem from the fact that, that local reporters aren't aggressive enough or that there just aren't enough of them, that we have very few, very few investigative reporters uh, spread very thin these days? Well, you're not giving enough credit, um, if I can say credit, to ele- especially elected officials but also candidates who are have become very – expert at controlling oh, yeah. their controlling the message and controlling access to them and controlling the news about them and uh, we were talking um, yes. before the show about the um, unseen to the public generally but the aggressiveness of certain um, elected officials uh, who, who do everything they can and who send their staffs out to be attack dogs, to intimidate reporters, um, attempt to intimidate editors, which usually doesn't work, <laughs> um, and, and to you know, control what's heard about their candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I think that gets to become um, that that that's a question of transparency. I think on on the part of the candidates or the government officials as well uh, is when when you control a message to to that extent to where everything you send out is an emailed statement, a written statement, or based off of a very um, strictly controlled press conference, that is not transparency. Uh, You are not allowing um, people to actually, uh, people, and by that I mean reporters or citizens, to actually look at its government, look at how you are operating um, and and to me as a reporter, that raises a lot of red flags when you you operate in that manner. To what extent um, do does the media currently um, get explicit about sourcing of their stories when they you know I, I think you you don't see as often as you should. Candidate X said this in a written statement but, after declining right. to speak to the press and not returning phone calls for three weeks and blah blah blah. Right. I always say in an emailed statement, and you get so much of that, and you talked about transparency, but to me it's a matter of maturity and professionalism. <laughs> you're an elected official, and you're elected by the people, and you owe it to them to speak to them. And if you can't live up to that part of your job, you really shouldn't even be there. And it's um, infuriating, and it's increased in all the years that I've been a reporter. 
you could always talk to a mayor before. Now you can't. You get these written statements back late often just before you have your deadline when you can't even, you know, go back and say, I need to follow up on this. So it's it's very discouraging. Yeah. So it's lack of follow-up questions yes. for sure. I mean, that's what, an, that's, that, that's what an emailed statement is. It's just a way to control the message. I mean, Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell is um, – one of the biggest offenders, I think, of that. He uh, is very careful about who he gives interviews to and who he uh, refuses to speak to. I mean, uh, I, I often write, Honolulu Mayor Kurt Caldwell declined to comment or refused yeah. to comment. Yeah. Um, actually, I've been doing that for nearly four years, <laughs> um, as have a, a number of my colleagues. Um, but, you know, it is important, too, to note that when you do see statements in other media outlets that they should include whether or not it was a written statement or some sort of canned statement uh, that, that came to them. And, so, you know, sometimes you don't. And, and that's kind of disappointing. And you know, but it came from the spokesperson, not even the mayor writing it off. And it's filtered through a third party. Is the problem, though, that it's just impossible to hold them accountable, that most readers don't pay much attention to that, and the costs are so high if they make a mistake or say something they later regret, um, and it's really not very hard for them to send a written statement? I mean, is, is it just is it impossible to solve this problem? That's their goal, yeah. but we should be not letting them do it. You know, that, of course, that's their goal, and it's very clever, and it does work. So it, I'm struck by... You get a bunch of reporters together, and they'll tell you how angry they are at, at trying to, being crushed for trying to do their jobs, and yet that's not conveyed in what we report. You know, if uh, if you have some thoughts on, uh, on how the media ought to cover uh, local political campaigns or politics, you can always join our conversation tonight at nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine on the neighbor islands. Nick Ruby is here, Denby Fawcett is here, um, and Ian Lind is here tonight um, talking about these issues. Um, I wanted to switch gears for a moment and talk about how the internet has changed reporting. Uh, Nick works for an online news paper. Uh, Ian is a well-known blogger. Um, how, how does that change the way you report? And, and also, how does, it, how does the knowledge that you're going to get instant feedback from the readers change how you think about your reporting? Because I know as, as a regular reader, for example, of, of Civil Beat, I mean, the, the comments can be pretty, pretty rough. Um, and you don't sort of receive that instant feedback um, in traditional news outlets. Yeah. I mean, so... Uh, <laughs> Make sure you get it right, because if you don't, somebody <laughs> will call you on it pretty quickly, um, which is good. I mean, yeah. um, uh, uh, that is important. Um, I, I, I think working in an online environment, um, and, and I must say I did used to work for traditional newspapers, but we always had uh, websites. In fact, um, it, it was a, a, always a part of my training as a journalist to consider um, – the web when when working on a piece, although it's advanced much much more <laughs> over the years, um, but I, I I think with with online news again you you have a lot of ability to get a lot of information quickly, so your depth of reporting mm -hmm. um, can change, uh, and 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 that's good. That's 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 really good for readers. Um, often uh, the sense of immediacy has changed as well. I mean, you're no longer seeing newspapers 
uh, printing four or five times uh, in a day, if not more, various editions, et cetera. But uh, it's constant. If news breaks, you got to get it up. Mm-hmm. And occasionally that results in mistakes, as we've all seen by people jumping the gun. Um, but I'd love to hear what uh, what Denby and Ian have to say about this. Oh, I, I just love it. I've reported every kind of reporting. When I was a child, I made up newspapers with a pencil and then went to regular print, print <laughs> reporting when I was still in high school and then to TV and then to this. But this is the best fun, best kind of reporting you could ever do because you can back up everything, but you can do it with links mm-hmm. so you don't have to drag down your story, you know, for someone who may not want all of the detail. You just link it to some lengthy and you can put in so much information and you can uh, and then I love when people correct things quickly and give you and you can flop it right in the story. I remember hot print when you would have to wait, you know, for the next day to get that that correction in there and then plus the access to information that you have i mean it's incredible to read original reports and to give those to your readers so on balance the internet has improved political journalism i well i, w- I think so because it's given you the original mm-hmm. documents it's given your the smart reader uh, and then court cases too to just throw out a su- supreme court decision to a reader and let them read that beautiful writing of the justices that even a little sixth grader could understand. What do you think, Ian? You often link to official documents in your blog. and um... Well, I do, but I'm just struck by how infrequently the mainstream media take advantage of yeah. that in that way. So I always look when they say, you know, we're a report was released yesterday by agency so-and-so, and it has these, these things in it, one, two, yeah. three. And I said, well, where's the link to the report? What, you know, yeah. it, I'm flabbergasted by Absolutely. how often we're left um, thinking like, do I have to go to the library or do I have to go down to the agency myself? I did for that 30 years ago, but I shouldn't have to do that today. And then you want to decide for yourself. Then you yeah. can say, you, you're, you're interpreting that all wrong. Here's what I see in it. We'll, uh, we'll go now to, to uh, Kelly, who's calling from Waialua. Aloha, Kelly. You're on Town Square. Hello. Uh, I just got one simple question. What's that? Oh, sorry. Um, my question is, why is using the calling someone a liar on the radio such, it's almost like a curse word. I heard it this morning, and I've heard it with Diane Rings in the past, when you call a candidate, whether on the national or the local scale, a liar, for when they tell a half-truth. Why is it? Why is that so much trouble? For for the journalist or for the moderator? That's what you mean. Yes. All right. Well, why why is that? I mean, I think we're going to see this. Of course, the uh, the presidential debate is coming up, um, and uh, Matt Lauer was famously criticized for the way he handled this this pre debate. Um, how how aggressive should should a moderator be? I mean, sometimes journalists play mm-hmm. that role. Um, to what extent do you do you challenge? Are you responsible for challenging politicians for statements like that when you're playing that role as as moderator? Well, I think you should be able to do it, as, but it requires having a lot of information, and that's what you want out of your moderator, not to just sit there like some people you see on TV that just sit listening with these deer in the headlights look in their face. I mean, I, I love it when someone uh, butts right in and says, but you said this on this day. So I, I think they should be as aggressive as they can, do the best they can. Yeah, well, it, it's 
called fact checking on the fly, right? right. I, I mean, you're trying to so so in, in the context of a debate, if if you're a moderator or if you're on live television interviewing somebody, uh, and if you're talking to say a presidential candidate um, about a very com- uh, an extraordinarily complex topic, they could say something, and you might not have. Any idea uh, in that in that moment whether or not that statement is true? That, that's why you see yeah. uh, organizations like uh, factcheck.org, I believe, are out there. And what they'll do is they'll watch debates and they will do the fact checking uh, as it's happening. But sometimes in Civil Beat, we used to do fact checks uh, as well. Um, and, and and you try your best to like go back and set the record straight uh, from from again a live debate. Uh, but before you write an article, you should be vetting uh, before you publish uh, so- someone's statement. Calling someone a liar uh, is yeah. is tricky mm-hmm. too. I mean, um, if you catch someone in a lie, I mean, I, I think lie uh, you have to prove intent, right? Uh, is it a lie or did they misspeak? Right. Um, uh, If they repeatedly tell you something as fact and you know it not to be true and you confront them with that uh, and they acknowledge that, yes, it's not true. And then they keep saying it over and over and over again. (laughs) Sure. Call them. (laughs) You can call them a liar, someone who has trouble with the truth. Going now to uh, Stuart from Diamond Head. Aloha, Stuart. You're on Town Square. Hi. Good afternoon, guys. just wanted to thank you for the great work you guys do, um, fan of each of your pieces. My question is, in the face of declining revenue from, you know, newspapers, Civil Beat just recently moved to nonprofit status. It seems like the best journalism we're getting these days are from kind of nonprofits that receive funding, whether it's federal or from other sources. Do you think this is the model for the future? I have a feeling that's directed towards me uh, <laughs> uh, in, in some ways um, uh, with with Civil Beat's recent shift to nonprofit journalism. I mean, yeah, you are seeing a lot of uh, nonprofit news outlets um, that are, are, are springing up. You're also seeing a lot of uh, wealthy benefactor news outlets uh, uh as well, and uh, not only Civil Beat, but also um, uh, w- where we got our start, uh, but also uh, the Washington Post and, and, and other organizations. Um, I think newspapers, news outlets are still trying to figure out that right balance uh, for making making revenue because it's it, it's hard to find money. Uh, in, in this world and the demands for the type of journalism that I think uh, we should expect, um, it's a, it's expensive to do. Expensive to do that research. <clears throat> it, yeah, but, it, yeah, it takes a long time. I mean, I'm sure Ian can, can talk uh, at length about how long it might take to do a single story. Um, it, you know, it could, it could take months. This is where one of the problems – the internet uh, creates several problems. I think one, um, it's much easier for p- people commenting uh, online to be nasty and bitter, and uh, you know, I, I mean, flaming was what created civil beat, right? Because uh, there was so much um, nastiness uh, responding to journalism that civil beat said, "Well, we got to have a way to have these." conflicting opinions 
um, discussed without people attacking each other. Um, so that that the the flaming issue is one. Then the immediacy of the internet means that the reality that it takes time and research and effort to produce real, um, especially investigative work, the kind of things that uh, Nick does. Um, people don't people don't see that. They say, "Why don't you wrote you wrote something yesterday? Where's my sword today? Where's my sword today?" And and there's it puts pr- pressure on everybody to how how do you possibly meet those expectations when the reality is um, there aren't that many people doing it, and it takes time and it takes effort and it takes money to produce that news that everybody wants to criticize. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever see the the old days where you had foreign bureaus and people actually out in other countries reporting on things. And like even in, when I was reporting, the Honolulu advertiser sent us to other countries and hmm. to yeah. the mainland, of course. And that perspective as well as the in-depth reporting and the, the research and then hiring the people that can do that. They cost money. You Nowadays, you see on the a lot of the TV stations, very young people that aren't even journalists. Like my old station, we have a, a famous singer acting as a reporter. And um, it's just different. We can't even send people to the neighbor islands, actually. Yeah, you know, that cut way. Well, I think Nine, uh, Hawaii News Now, former Channel Nine, they had a bureau on the big island for a while. Oh, wow. And very fascinating with the volcano and good news stories, good po- political stories. <laughs> Well, and, and, and I mean, this really gets down to revenue, right? Like, yeah. where, do, where do you get your money? I mean, we're seeing with the Honolulu Star Advertiser um, a, a decline in revenue there. And it's going to result in layoffs, at least, according yeah. um, to, to, to Dennis Francis over there. Um, but it, with getting back to Stuart's original question about um, nonprofit news and the future of news, I think what you see is a diverse diversification of revenues. You know, not only um, should newspapers, news outlets be seeking funds from ads, but they're also hosting events or like First Look Media, another venture by uh, Piero Midiar, who's um, the publisher of Civil Beat, um, they worked on Spotlight, the movie, uh, and uh, and there are other there are other avenues to try to make money and, and seek seek revenue, and um, it's just getting harder and more complex. If uh, if you'd like to join our conversation tonight, uh, the number here is nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine on the neighbor islands. Um, uh, Nick Ruby is here, Denby Fawcett is here, um, and Ian Lind is here. I wanted to uh, – you mentioned revenue, and one, one revenue model that does seem to be a bit successful is, uh, is partisan news sources. I mean, this I bring up Fox News, MSNBC. To what extent has this contributed to polarization, do you think, in U.S. politics? And to what extent will this become the new model? In other words, uh, a more successful revenue stream because you're sort of giving people what, what they want to hear. Is is objective <laughs> news dying, or is it well, only, or are we dependent on wealthy benefactors to maintain it? Well, I think that will probably always be with us because, as you mentioned, it's successful. But growing up around it, you see other news that isn't so entertainment driven and so, you know, biased as you said, or going in one single direction. So I think 
you'll get a big reaction to it, which will probably result in real news. Well, it's, to some extent, the uh, that partisan news is reflecting the increasing um, divisions in, in the public, who you know so so much of the public now distrusts everyone, distrusts the media, distrusts elected officials, distrusts lawyers, distrusts the IRS, distrusts Congress. Um, you know, it's like how. How do you possibly um, produce um, mass media, media that's going to hit more than just a segment of the public when the public refuses to to um, sign on, you know, to, to receive that news? Where, where do you think that comes from, this distrust of the media and in some cases just hatred of the media? I mean, uh, you'll often hear people call out the mainstream media, how they're somehow either corrupt or biased. Uh, where where do you think that that attitude comes from? I mean, you almost sort of experience this as journalists, people who are instantaneously uh, suspicious of you because you're you're a journalist or don't don't trust what you're writing. Um, that's it's sort of a curious attitude given the goal of journalism, which is to be open and transparent. And it's often a very transparent institution when you're uh, you know sharing where you're getting your information, who you're interviewing. Where where do you think that comes from? I, I tend to think it comes from a few different places. Um, one is the ability for uh, politicians and others to communicate directly uh, with their constituents um, and, and others. Um, I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, we have seen some high-profile cases in the media lately in which people have been busted for getting it wrong lying, making things up, uh, that reflects poorly on a lot of us. Um, and, and, and I would almost argue that for the longest time that uh, journalists and the institution of journalism in, in the United States wasn't as transparent about the process of gathering information. Um, I think that's one of the things that we tried to do at Civil Beat uh, by um, embedding the documents that we would read. Um, and so that way, if we said, hey, this document said this, you check it out for yourself, someone could read it and say, wait a second, you were cherry picking X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, and why didn't you address these other parts of that report or those emails that you had obtained? Um, so, but, but I think for the longest time, you, you didn't have that. It was, uh, you know, we are the media, trust us. Will decide for you, but another place you you see it driven is like the the two presidential candidates. They hate the media, both of them, and then Trump just says it openly. He says that people are liars, and he insults reporters and uh, kicks them out. Right. And and then Hillary Clinton, she's a little more polite about it. She just doesn't meet with reporters, and people have very little access to her. So those two candidates, they're. They're just staying way outside of the news. They try and manage everything they do, and they talk only when they want to and only in the most uh, controlled situations. Maybe we need a scorecard with 76 state legislators and the governor's office and the mayor's offices and ranking. Hey, can the media get to you? Do you talk talk to reporters? How often? (laughs) How many people say yes or no? That'd be an interesting story. True. I've actually always wanted to sort of do that. Um, I've also wanted to do a scorecard for all of the uh, public information officers around (laughs) town and see if we could get uh, all the journalists in town to – um, uh, perhaps sit down and sort of rank them or, or give their honest views on them because I think that gets back to the idea of holding the, the 
those who have the information uh, accountable as well. We could give them uh, rewards and prizes for the most transparent and helpful. Right. Well, well, the, uh, there, there's an organization, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Association. They actually give out what's called the Golden Padlock uh, every year, <laughs> and um, that 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 tends and you know that that tends to go to the government agency that has been the most obstructionist uh, in the country. Um, might have to nominate a few uh, Hawaii organizations, <laughs> but their boss would probably give them a raise. Whoever got the padlock, right. no one. I don't think anybody's ever. <laughs> really accepted it when they, they, it's always an award that IRE accepts for itself. So the, the media has changed, elections have changed, have elected, to what degree have elected officials changed over time? I'm thinking of, you know, you can't imagine today, I'm thinking back to Mayor Frank Fossey, uh. sitting, every morning would go and sit in a coffee shop downtown at an open table uh, available to anybody who wanted to pull up a chair and talk. And fight, he'd, he'd, he'd scream at you or he'd talk to you. It didn't matter. But he was there and, and totally open and accessible, at least for that period of time. And people who were smart enough would be, you know, I'm going to make sure at Heidi's at that time and get there at the table because I want to know what's going on. I can't imagine that happening now. Can you imagine Kirk Caldwell every day going out and being in an open stage? Um, you know, it's, why do you think that's changed? I mean, why why don't politicians feel like they can work with the media or in some cases use the media to, to have them tell their own stories? Um, why, why, why is the natural reaction now to hide behind public information officers? Lack of confidence, I think. Like Frank Fossey, not afraid of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> like what Ian described sitting there, he had his dog with him. And that was the only thing you had to Gino. fear. Yeah, because it was a... Too many bread like spaniels who snap at you. <laughs> but you know, I about a year or so ago, I looked up the census data, and you know, there are four point something PR people, working PR people in Hawaii for every reporter, and that was before the last round of of news cutbacks. Um, before the actually, it was right before the two newspapers merged. So the ratio is probably worse now. So part of this is just reflecting industries the same way. Um, and politics yeah. has become corporatized in that same way. The odds are stacked against us, <laughs> is, is what Ian is saying. If, uh, if you'd like to join our conversation, we still have a few minutes left. Uh, you can still call us here at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. You know, you know, one development I wanted to mention before we end tonight is, is the rise of, of the comedy, almost infotainment uh, shows. Some people have asserted that shows like, like The Daily Show, like the former Colbert Report, um, like John Oliver, are doing some of the best work right now um, in the media, in investigative journalism. I mean, Oliver's show is in some ways an investigative journalism show. What, what role do they play, and, and how do you feel about their occasional assertions that they're not real journalists, even if they are doing, in some cases, the work of journalism? I think they engage people, and especially young people. So I think they're, you know, fabulous, and it's just different. That didn't exist before. I actually think uh, what they're doing has been around since the beginning of journalism in the United States. I mean, it's oh, satire, yeah. you mm -hmm. know, um, and, and I think um, what when they say they're not journalists, they do do journalism in the sense uh, – that they are going out and digging up facts, um, hopefully presenting it uh, accurately, um, and, and and 
and, and putting it out there for people to consume, but they're doing it with a very specific point of view, which I think uh, as um, Americans we have come to expect uh, journalists to be this a journalist to be a stoic, objective observer who never gives a sort of point of view um, on whatever it is they're covering, and, and that point of view is this is right or this is wrong. Um, I, I mean, that's sort of my take on it, but I, I do consider what they do to be journalism. I mean, it, it a lot of different people can do it. It's just whether or not um, you want to believe everything that they are saying. Well, you're right, too. They're sort of like op-ed people and the paper, which there were many of before that wrote humorously about politics. And that's a great way to treat it, you know, to go through the back door. Well, it's of, like just like advertising. Yeah, the yeah. difference between those great Super Bowl, clever, funny ads that make people – people don't even see them as ads. They see them as entertainment and yet the boring stuff we get. And look at the political ads we get. Political ads, by and large, are the most boring, awful, yeah. off-putting <laughs> things. And I always thought, why doesn't somebody hire an advertising firm that can make clever ads, that can draw you in, that can – the way that Super Bowl ads do? You know? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> what, what mistakes do you think have been made this season? I mean, do you think the media has made any serious errors in the way they've covered, particularly the national campaign? I mean, I know there's been a lot of soul-searching about – what to do about Trump, but maybe what to do about Hillary Clinton, too. I mean, who's been uh, really reluctant to, uh, to, uh, to talk to reporters at times. Um, is, there any, is there any error you, you sort of feel embarrassed about for your profession? Well, I, I don't feel embarrassed, but I guess, you know, it's something everyone knows of not treating Trump seriously from the beginning. I mean, almost everyone has said that, that they just thought he was a joke and he'd be gone in a day. And it's Almost like he thought he would too, but so, so he's yeah, treated as entertainment yeah, instead of as we got to get yeah, down and be serious say, this about is, this. Um, something going on in our country would people like this person? So I'd say that would be a huge error, but it, it's a human error. Everyone made it. If uh, we're coming up on the very end of the show, and I was hoping you could each just just leave the listeners with with one thought about how they should think about media coverage this campaign season, what they should watch out for. I mean, you should always think for yourself whenever you read it uh, or watch it and also consider the source. Um, Mine would be don't be lazy. You know, look around, read other things, go online. There's so much out there. To put a little work into it. It's an important decision you're going to be making. And I, w- I would say don't don't forget that uh, you know you can call a reporter and say I heard this or I'd like to know this or here's something that y- you know you you should know this. Um, reporters are often looking for that kind of information. So it's not only a one-way street, you listening to the reporters. Thank you. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us tonight. This was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for all of you who called in. Um, this was Town Square. Uh, good night. Good night.